Hello and welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. In this episode, I talk to Chris Lewis, who is 16,000 miles into a 20,000 mile walk all the way around the UK coastline. The first part of his walk for the first three years, he was on his own. And then the last year or so, he's been walking with his fiancee, Kate. And the topic of our conversation was the benefits um, and the discoveries you make of spending time alone in the wild. It's one of the most ancient um, techniques for developing self-reliance, introspection, learning about yourself, learning about your place in the world and your relationship to nature, those kind of things. And depending on what area in the world we're talking about, they call it walkabout, uh, vision quest, those kind of things. Uh, I did a seven-month uh, trip in my um, early 20s um, around Scotland, England and Wales on my own with a backpack and it was one of the best things I've ever done um, in terms of learning about who I was. Uh, so that's what I explore with Chris. He's got a lot to say about it. He was um, su- properly surviving, foraging for food, doing it with very, very little money and he's a real inspiration. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Chris Lewis. Hello Ralph, how are you? I'm good. <clears throat> Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. Thank you, thank you for having me. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to talk uh, about solo time in the wilderness. Um, as a, It's one of the most ancient transformational activities Indeed. that people have been doing you know, forever. I'm thinking of... Um, a lot of the initiations that boys went through to become men, spending you know extended period of time in the wilderness, yeah. like a vision quest, that kind of thing, walkabouts. There's lots of different names Indeed, for it. Yeah. Um, and you've been on a, a really epic one, um, you. and you you haven't finished it, but you're just setting the stage for people listening to this that might not know you. Um, that you. Uh, have a walking in the entire UK coastline. That's right. Yes, yes. And just remind me, how many miles that is? Um, so it's around twenty, just under twenty thousand. I would say the majority of that um, is the west coast of Scotland and the islands. You know, like Skye's a thousand miles, Shetland's a thousand mile, Moles I think it's about eight hundred. So it all adds up. So you, it's quite hard to, when you see the UK as a whole on the map, it only seems really small. But the circumference of the world is twenty five thousand miles. So you're only short. Of 5,000 miles from going around the world, yeah. so hence the reason it's taken me so long. <laughs> so the, you go literally around every single island, yeah. no matter how small, and yeah. off, off the west coast of Scotland there's a ton of them. Yeah. Did you go, so have you just done Northern Ireland? Yeah, I've done Northern Ireland as well. Yeah. I didn't do Southern Ireland, um, you know, more for a safety thing than anything, because I'm doing this for a veterans charity, so mm-hmm. um, yeah, I kind of stayed away from that one. But I really do want to go back and do Ireland. I feel bad missing it, even though it's not part of the UK. Mm. Um, you know, I really wanted to do it, but one day. Yeah. One day. Have you ever been to Ireland? I have indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. I like Ireland. Yeah, yeah, I lived in Northern Ireland for a good few years, so I'd often travel down, and um, when I left the army, I drove, so I was a driver for like articulated lorries, and I was traveling for a sun-blessed um, 
and just yeah, just go down to County Cavern. You know, it's a beautiful place, really, really nice. But as of the coast, I've not seen any of it. Yeah, nothing. I I I've done uh, from so well. I mean, the, from Cork all the way up yeah, to yeah. Sligo all oh, along the coast. Good um, surf up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so you. You've been doing this for four and a half years? So yeah, it's just over four and a half years now. So I left on the 1st of August 2017. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's surreal because I'd doing something like this, you know, there's never a time limit. I, I didn't have a clue, you know, basically. But I did think maybe in a year, year and a half, but I totally underestimated, you know, every part of the coast that I went to, I made sure that I kept it a surprise to myself. Um, I didn't want to know about it because I, I like the exploration side of things. So. Um, I had no idea it was going to take me this long, but I would do it all again, without a doubt. And then you, you started off on your own. Yes. And then somewhere along the way, you picked up a dog. Yes. Who's here, yeah, Jet. Jet here. So how, how long had you been going before you met Jet? So I had come through, I'd done Wales, uh, the west coast of England, um, up into Scotland, Northern Ireland, and then sort of like went into Ayrshire. Um, on the west coast of Scotland. So I've been going for about nine months before I picked her up. Um, and she belonged to a family that were unable to have her anymore. So I knew that I was just about to go and start doing the islands and Jet and I just connected immediately. I just knew it. Um, so I would have been very choosy of what dog to, to take with me. I needed a breed that, for example, could handle the kind of stuff that I was going to be doing. I didn't want them to put them through any more stress than you know, they need be, but she's, you know, she's a sighthound, perfect breed for it. And she's had the time of her life. So. That was an absolute game changer, getting Jet. Yeah, it really was. Cool. Um, and then a bit later on, you met um, a lady called yes, Kate. Yes. Uh, so how far into your journey was that? So I had no, that would have been after the first lockdown. I just finished Shetland um, and came back to the north coast of Scotland, and I was just camped. It's three and a half years, I think, before I actually met Kate. Three years before I met Kate. Um, yeah, how time flies, four and a half years, man. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I just was down at the bottom of some steps. My tent had been broken, so I'd actually been staying in somebody's garden um, in a teepee. But there's a lot of people coming over um, all the time, and I was quite tired at this point, because the, the, my Facebook page was really picked up, and I was getting a lot of people asking questions all the time, everywhere I went, so I just wanted some space for a night. And it was just potluck half an hour after I rocked up. You know, I was fixing my tent pole just to sleep for the night, and... Uh, yeah, Kate just walks down the steps and we had a, a five minute brief conversation because there was other people talking to me at the same time. And then Kate left and then, yeah, about 40 minutes to an hour later, she'd come back with her tent. She was on her own little adventure, wild camping around the, the North Coast 500. And um, yeah, she'd come down with her tent, two cans of tenants, some fish and chips and win-win. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, we just hit it off. And it's really surreal because having been on my own and spent so much time on my own for so long, you know, in the wildest parts you have in the UK. It was really weird because Kate camped next to me and we spent the whole night just chatting and talking and we just realised we had so much in common. And normally by that point, I think I'd be very ready for somebody, I don't mean this harshly, I'd be ready to be back on my own again and just have my own time, my own peace. And, and I didn't want her to leave, so I knew that there was something there. We kept in touch and for about six weeks she came up for our first date, which was in a bothy on the west coast of Scotland, an old shepherd's hut. And... Um, that was it, the rest is history. Literally a few weeks later, she came back up and uh, never went home. She, she joined me, so yeah, loved it. And, and then, um, some, uh, so you, then you, you started traveling, um, and then um, 
you have ended up here taking a little break from your journey because Kate is about to give birth. Yes. Um, so you, you've been staying with me to have your baby and, um, and then see where the next bit goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's how we met. Yeah, indeed. And um, so, we, so the, bit, the portion of your adventure that I wanted to explore with you today mm -hmm. was um, the bit before you met Kate, so uh, um, not that... The interesting not, bit. <laughs> it's not, not, that I'm, not that I'm not interested in your life with Kate. That's, a, that's an amazing story, and you've got the, a Facebook page with tons of stuff on there mm -hmm. about all the stuff you've done together, and it's, yeah. it's, it's really wonderful. Thank you. Um, but there's something which, you know, there's something that you and I have in common, which is a, a love of um, time on our own in the wilderness. Yeah. And um, so the, the sort of period where you're on your own and then with Jet um, for that time, which, that, so that was th three years? Three years, yeah. Three years, okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty yeah, decent chunk of time. <laughs> so I, I've done, um, I've done a lot of uh, backpacking around the world, but in terms of solo stuff, I've done uh, a mere seven months. Um, but that's still epic. It's, yeah, it's a lot more than uh, a lot of people do. Uh, four months in Scotland, two months in Wales, and one month in Ireland. Um, and uh, this was, this was a, a long time ago, before there were no smartphones. Yeah. Uh, mo few people had mobile phones, I didn't have one. I think I had a pager, something like that. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, so I was, I was totally out of contact. I didn't even have a camera, so I didn't record, none of it's recorded. Wow. It, it, it only lives in my memories. Yeah, you know? yeah, but that's nice. Uh, yeah, and, and stories and, and that, but, um, so quite a different, quite a different time. But so, um, the thing that I'm really interested in, in, in exploring is some of the things which are these time-honoured uh, phenomena that happen for people when they spend extended time on their own in yeah. the wild. Um, and you know, one of the reasons why people do it is to learn more about themselves and nature and your relationship with life and nature and your past and your present and the future. I mean, suddenly it all becomes very intense because you haven't got the normal distractions. You're away from the clutter of uh, life, isn't it? So, yeah. So what, um, I mean, was there, was there, a, why did you start, why, why did you decide to do it in the first place? Um, on a kind of uh, internal sense, your own uh, yeah. journey of self-discovery. So I'd been um, a single parent. In fact, I'll start with the fact that I've, the outdoors since I've been a child is, is my go-to. You know, um, I absolutely adore it. I spent every living waking minute that I could outside climbing trees, being mischievous, you know, just, just being a young lad, but outside, you know, it's so different now because obviously we've got more computers and I think people have detached themselves from it. But I spent so much time doing it. And what I realized was, was when, you know, as a single parent, I'd suddenly become part of this one thing. I'm not talking about my daughter, but the whole system, if you like, I didn't enjoy it at all. I felt so engaged and so trapped. Um, but I think it would be safe to say maybe that it was depression. I'm not sure it was. I think I just felt like a, a bird trapped in a cage and, and, and I needed to get out of it. And it got me to the point where I was just so down and I didn't enjoy what I was doing. I didn't enjoy my life. I didn't enjoy the jobs I was doing. I was always bouncing from one job to another because nothing would make me happy. I'd get bored in, in a few weeks and just think, right, I can't do this anymore. And then go to something else. So 
I knew that I couldn't continue doing that for the rest of my life. You know, I, it, I'm so glad it happened because it taught me such a valuable lesson that, um, you know, life is so short at the end of the day. This is just a fleeting glimpse. And if I'd have carried on doing that, I wouldn't have been happy. So when Caitlin grew up and she left um, to go down to college, to go to uh, college and the university in Bournemouth, um, pretty much immediately, um, I packed my bags and just left. I was only renting at the time, I was in a council flat. Um, so I just packed my bags and left and it was a, a big, big choice for me because I just needed to, I didn't need to run away from anything. I don't think that was the case, but I needed to just, I was so unhappy, that wasn't me. I was a, I'm a happy bloke, you know, kind of always the center of attention at a party, having a laughs and fun, and, but it just wasn't for me and I wanted to change that immediately. Um, so that's what I did, I had no money. Um, I literally had nothing. I went out for a surf one day um, and I was really pretty down at this point, you know, wondering where my life was going to go. Caitlin had left, so I was obviously really sad about that, but that happening had opened up, I suppose, a window of opportunity for me to actually think about myself for a second, because I think even she saw that I wasn't particularly happy. And yeah, um, I went for a surf one day and the biggest surf that I've ever, ever rode in my life. Um, caught this incredible wave, landed on the beach and walked up to the top of the cliffs with my surfboard and just thought, you know what, I'm going to walk home. Um, and in that moment, I just thought, you know what, just, just walk the UK. Yeah, just, just keep going. going. Why not wave, going. wave and stop at home? Yeah, just almost very Forrest Gump-esque. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it really was like that. Um, I, there was no plan. I had no money. Um, I told a few people and they all thought I was absolutely crazy because I think they're, the way they think about life and the way they think, you know, everything has to be planned. You know, you need to save up. You've got to have loads of money. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? I just shut all of that off and just thought, nah, this is my thing. Um, I believe that I can do it. I'll make it work somehow. You know, that was the confidence that I had in myself, given the fact that I'd spent so long just doing stuff outside and I'd learned so much. And um, yeah, with a tenner, two days worth of rations, a pair of boots that didn't fit, a hole in the top of my tent, and just bung some clothes in there, um, I left. And yeah, four and a half years later, here I am. <laughs> that, and that's, that's really good for people to hear that you did this with no money yeah. because quite often you know people make excuses that you know like you can tell uh, inside they really want to do something significant like that yeah of course um before they die <laughs> um but <clears throat> you know you, yeah you can you can tell when someone's heart is saying i've, I've got to do this because it's it's you know it's on my bucket list um, but then, then suddenly their kind of their mind kicks in with all the fear and oh, you know, of course. I, could, I couldn't do this because I haven't got any money. Yeah. Um, and um, what well, is you know, oh, I, ha I can't spare the time. Um, I've got too many responsibilities. Those kind of things. But a lot of the time, they're just, uh, frankly, just excuses. Of course they are. So that you're coming from fear. Hundred um, percent. And for people to know that you've managed to. To, to do four and a half years of non-stop permanent living in a tent, walking around the coast, and you started with 10 quid. Mm -hmm. uh, and you haven't been <clears throat> doing jobs and stuff no. around. So, I mean, how, I know you've done a lot of eating wild yeah, food. That's pretty much how I started it, you know. Yeah. I, the one thing, you know, I never wanted to do this um, to, you know, and take off people you know that's not what this was about um i'd been very poor before this um so i knew what it was like to not have food for a couple of days and um 
you know, that goes to show you the state of mind that I was in, you know, if I thought things like that was normal. So I knew that I was capable of doing that. Um, and yeah, it was just very much, look, I'm a firm believer in the one thing I always had in myself was full confidence, whether it be in anything I do, if I put my mind to it, I know I could do it. But the important part was finding something that I was really passionate about. Um, so it just, in my mind, it was really this simple. Whatever happens, I'm going to make this work. Jet, like a bit, that's all right. Camera spot there, aren't you? Not camera shy, Jet. Come lay down. That's, no, she's good. She's good. Um, so yeah, it was very. Uh, I just really believed in myself, and that's so important. But it's ironic because I always looked at the first stage of this journey as kind of a honeymoon period. You know, I was excited to get away from the life that I wanted to leave behind. You know, everything was great. I really hadn't settled into the walk for a very long time. You know. I was at a point in my life where I wasn't really speaking to many people. I'd become so isolated purely on the basis that oh, I just want to enjoy and have a bit of fun here and there. And I don't mean going out and spending money. For me, as long as I've got a guitar and a surfboard um, and I'm outside, that's, that's where I'm at, you know. So I didn't need much for this. And I think because people, you know, we certainly live in a society where, you know, it's a very consumerism society that we live in. And I didn't need any of that. And you don't need any of it. Um, let's be honest, the happiest times in my life have been having absolutely nothing, um, but just feeling great in here, and, and that's exactly what this walk has done for me. Well, you're, you're here now, alive, well-fed, yeah. uh, you know, healthy, yeah. and um, that's on four years of no money. Not mission accomplished, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might go, get, get, I'd like, want to explore the foraging in a minute, but you brought up um, the, the silence and not talking to people. Um, so something really special happens when you don't talk to anybody yeah. for days or weeks. It does indeed. Um, and sometimes I, I would go, I don't think I ever went more than a week without talking to a person, but I certainly went several days in a row. And <clears throat> one of the things I noticed was when I would speak to someone, my, actually my vocal cords wouldn't work. <laughs> Titan, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you sound like you've just sucked in some helium or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which was which is odd, but what I mean, what what did silence do for you? So, um, I think it was when I got to the west coast of Scotland um, and started getting to the wilder parts. So you start heading up towards the Oban sort of area, Fort William, and you start basically island hopping, where you know everything took a change for me because there's so much noise everywhere, um, television, radio, people, advice, people selling you stuff. When can you get a chance to think? I mean, I think literally the first time, you know, if you have a family or anything like this, people get a chance to think is probably the 10 minutes before they go to bed and put their feet up, you know, otherwise they're consumed by television or something like this. So and that's suddenly where all their thoughts start coming up and then yeah, they can't sleep. And then, <laughs> yeah, then they can't sleep or um, they just shut it off because they've got to go to work tomorrow. So yeah. it's just not giving yourself a chance. Mm. But it was once I'd became really competent of, of, of you know, there's a lot of places in Scotland that you don't want to break a leg and stuff like this, so you're always focusing about that sort of thing. But once I become really competent in that, I'm always very aware. My day was so simple, hard, but simple. So it'd be get up, pack my gear away. It is the same routine, but a routine I like doing. Find a water source, make a cup of coffee, write what can we eat today, just always scouring the coast for good little foraging spots for shellfish and all this sort of stuff. And I, all of a sudden, I just realised that I was doing like nine hours of just thinking and that's where I grew you know I think people are so scared to be on their own but actually it's a wonderful place to be 
it's where you can get creative, amazing ideas start coming up. You know, I started noticing a pattern that everything that I wanted to happen on this walk, you know, I, I even wanted to do a documentary about it. And so I started getting creative in my mind, right, how can I make these things work? Because I've given myself the space and time to do it. I wasn't afraid to just spend days on end with, without anybody. And I realized this is really actually very healthy. And because of it, all those things come into fruition in the end. Um, because I just learned that that peace and that time in your own mind, not in a good place, is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. If you can transfer that, um, which can be done, I'm living proof, um, it's a wonderful place to be. You know, I still to this day, throughout my entire life, wherever I am, will be going off to places on my own and just having time for me, just thinking. You know, I wouldn't say it's a, you know, there's different types of meditation, if you like, and I'm not one to sit in a room and meditate, but I'm certainly um, think that that's the place that perhaps I do it, even though it's different. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to be. I, I couldn't be happier. And, um, I realise the importance of it, and I, I encourage anybody to do it. So the, the type of meditative experience you are having probably falls more into the category of um, flow states. Mm -hmm. um, and um, one of the, the kind of characteristics of, a, of a, the types of activities that generate a flow state are a kind of repetitiveness. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think that what really it was for me, the meditation, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd walk over browsing, I did a lot of scaling around the side of mountains and all of a sudden it would just open up and mm. I'd cry. I, I'd literally just yeah. suddenly, like just this euphoric sort of, I'd just cry and I didn't even understand why. But I think more for me that, the, you know, the meditation side of it was perhaps how grateful I felt that I'd given my time to really connect again with the outside world, with nature. Mm -hmm. um, it's a wonderful place to be. It's the reason we're here. I don't think we're nowhere near as grateful enough, um, you know, as what we put out there. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible. And um, yeah, those, it's those moments of silence in the evenings when you're just listening to the birds. I know it sounds cheesy, but listening to the birds and I'd be laying in the tent and my, even my hearing became better. I was so acute to little noises. Um, I could hear the difference between a fox and a badger, you know, the different sounds of different birds. So I'd spend my night doing that rather than, you know, yeah, it was cold. Yeah, I got wet during the day and whatever. But the, the perks of that was that I got to do that. So, um, but yeah, it's, that for me was, a, I'd say, a spiritual side of it. It wasn't the fact that I'd sit there and go into my own little world. Mm. I'd allow the world to come into me um, and it helped. I think with the, the flow states, uh, you what happens that you have this sort of selfless experience where you become the thing you're doing. Agreed. You become the task. So it's you, yeah. There's... It, it's important enough um, that you've really got to focus. So you, you, um, and that doesn't mean thinking. That means just paying attention to what you're doing. So if you're somewhere dangerous, and uh, uh, the, the, the stakes have got to be high, quite high to put you into this heightened state yeah. of alertness. Yeah. Um, so as you say, when you're walking across rough terrain, you could break an ankle, break a leg, yeah. which in some of the wilder parts of Scotland you, is... Uh, proper potential for dying. Oh, a lot of people those, have lost their lives, yeah. you know, a lot. Yeah, because um, people quite often don't think of uh, the UK having serious wilderness, mm -hmm. but uh, in the, the west coast of Scotland and, and the, the islands and stuff, it is legit wilderness. Oh, of course it is. And it's why they had clans, you know. You look at central Scotland, you know, the mountain ranges and stuff like this, they had clans because it was so difficult for people to get from one place to another 
that they ended up just as clans and mm. fighting with each other rather than working together. So yeah, yeah, the geography the layout yeah, separated. Exactly. Them. That's yeah. why Scotland's like it is. And yeah, there are some very well places out there. Um, and yeah, that's that's where it's at for me. <laughs> and you you brought up another thing which is a characteristic of uh, the the kind of expansive experience of being in in the wild spot on your own is when you come upon one of those vistas that, that you can just see for miles yeah. and mountains yeah. and sea and you can see whales coming up in the sea and all the seabirds yeah. and eagles you see that and it it just it would well, it's all inspiring that that of sense of awe of course it is um is deeply hard the 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 yearning to have experiences of awe is is hardwired into the human psyche of course it is um and w- the way we tend to get that in a modern life is going to a cinema or something. You go to a cinema, you get blown away by the big sound, the big screen, all the effects yeah. and the emotion and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but that's kind of what you have to do. Or you go to a nightclub, uh, you know, have some ecstasy, those kind of things. And they, those are all modern transformative yeah. experiences. But there's there's nothing as uh, consistently powerful powerful and delivering the goods as the experience of seeing some expanse of wilderness and going, oh my God. Yeah. And the fact um, that you're alone when you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's even... Yeah, you're not, you're not like sharing it with anybody. No, it's all it's, in it's there. Just, this is just for you, you can't, uh, there's no pretense. Of, exactly. You, you can't show off or whatever you're Exactly that. And that, I think, is, is, is wonderful. I, you know, I'd, I'd have it no other way. Um, you know, obviously, Kate with me now, but... <clears throat> When I was doing those those particular sections, I was nowhere near ready to have a partner or a girlfriend or anything like that. You know, I um I wasn't ready inside myself. But yeah, there's my favourite times. Like I said, I'd often just break out in tears at the most beautiful scenery. But it's, for me, it was more the peace of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, literally mean peace. It's it was. I said about you know my hearing and stuff like this. This is what benefits I realised. Firstly, how healthier I felt. I was drinking water out of streams every single day healthy and there's fluoride in it and um, that was really healthy I was in healthy food outside albeit not as much as I'd like to have but I was moving every single day so it was hard to find but I think the main um, yeah sort of the main sort of side of I don't know I got lost on that one to be honest with you <laughs> lots of fresh air yeah, yeah, yeah. about being healthy yeah lots of fresh air but my hearing you know when we come back into the busier areas, so I'd say Inverness was the first city that I saw in nearly three years. Um, I, I, I hated it. I hated mm. it. The buses were going past me. Normally, that it would never have bothered me, but they were going past. Jet and I were both jumping out of our skin, and mm. it just felt so loud. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but when you've just been surrounded by nothing but air, peace, and you know the worst thing you probably hear is some wind. Um, you know, big winds in, in the tent rocking and back. Other than that, it's just pure silence, and it's and the the you would have had the, the 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 sound of the sea in your ear all the time, all the time. Right and, next to the water. And the sea is uh, waves tend to um, the frequency of waves lapping on yeah. the shore is the same as um, I, I mean I'm. I think I just heard this years ago, and I, this may not be true, maybe true. I don't know. Um, has the same kind of rhythm as human breathing, mm-hmm. uh, induces um, sort of lower brainwave patterns, yeah. uh, like an alpha brain. So you know, a lot of the kind of relaxation CDs and things have um, the sound of waves in the background. Of course, of 
course, um, there's a reason for a reason. For that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, so when I did my seven months, I was on the coast ninety um, percent of the time. And I remember when I I left, it was, it was so weird not hearing that sound. Yeah. Um, I don't to, ever want to be away from it. If, if it, I it's a great. It's, it's, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful yeah. sound. And I and I live by the coast, and you know, go there yeah, a lot. And I, I just, but you've uh, done it yourself, and. You know, to put people into the picture, you just imagine just being literally in the middle of nowhere. You can get out, you know, I don't walk around everywhere naked, but I certainly did a lot there because I'd get out the tent, I'd just go and get in the sea, sit there, you know, first thing I do in the morning, and that's just lush, get back in the tent then, you know, get a coffee on the little stove um, and, and thinking about the day and just, it was just so peaceful. And, and actually, because I knew how to forage, I could have easily, and I did it a lot of times, when I got to a place that was just mesmerising. I'd say, you know what, I'm going to stay here for two days. In fact, I'm going to stay here till I get bored and I want to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just amazing. Absolute silence. The most you'd see probably is a boat in the distance. Um, otherwise, it was just you. And, and then the exploration side of it is going outside and, you know, collect, I love the routine of collecting firewood. Even when it's wet, you can still make fires easily. If you know what you're doing, collecting firewood and um, the whole process of, you know, the, it just strips you right back to what, well, hunter-gatherers did uh, the ancestors originally. Originally, yeah. it strips you right back to that, and then you suddenly realise really what's important and, and how much nonsense there is. <laughs> so, so those basic things were heat, yeah. fire, uh, shelter, mm. uh, and food yeah, and that water. Was that was my life. That was it. The, that's that. it. And it's it's still the same. Um, mm. Even you know, yeah. in the Western world, it's yeah. still very much the same. But there's just so much more going on to enable those things to happen. Um, but yeah, it's just a much, you have to work for it, don't get me wrong. Mm. I stayed on an island for the first lockdown off the west coast of Shetland called Hildesay, and it was just me on my own for three and a half months, uh, with Jet, of course. And, you know, my daily routines of once in a while a boat would come over and get me fresh water because I couldn't drink from the locks, it was a blue algae in it. Um, and the work ethic, you know, every single day just dragging these big 20 litre drums of water over to the other side of the island where it was safe. I'd be making fires sort of, you know, cookers basically on every section of the island. So depending on the wind direction means depending on where I can cook. So you really start homing into stuff that I would just never have thought about before. Um, and it's a lovely skill to have. It really, really is. You know, I feel completely confident that I can just be put somewhere and make a healthy living from it, regardless of where it was. And it's just a lovely way to live. These these guys, I can't remember the names. It was a husband and wife. Um, they wrote this book called Natural Capitalism or something like that. And um, they had done this analysis where they'd, uh, the, the, result, the conclusion was that to, with all the machines and things that we use now in, in our modern lives, yeah. one individual would need 50 slaves wow. um, to, for all the cooking, food growing, washing, um, cleaning, wow. construction, just... To, to, to support the life of one in modern human. Wow. Um, so when you say, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, chopping wood, carrying water, pitching your tent, hunting for food, it really is a lot of work. It is. Um, but I'd rather be spending my day doing that. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah I mean, you, can, you can be doing that, you're, you're going, going right to the source there, rather than sort of, um, I mean, not everybody sells their soul for their work but you know a lot of people do you know you you basically pimp yourself out 
for somebody to pay your money so you can pay other people to do those things for you exactly. and you can just cut all of that off the top 100%. and go right back down to the roots if you're prepared to yeah exactly if, if you'd be prepared not to have so much stuff <laughs> yeah and, and experience some some proper hardships so um you experienced so the one thing modern humans don't ever experience is proper hunger mm-hmm. and um I mean, I, I, in the Western world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Modern, modern people in the West. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's lots of places in the world where... I mean, I actually met someone from Somalia um, about 20 years ago, and we were talking, and when he asked me... Um, he'd been a political prisoner in, in Somalia and stuff. He, you know, he's had some serious difficulties in his life. And he asked me if I'd ever gone to bed hungry in my life. And I thought about it, and I honestly have never gone to bed hungry in my mm. life. And when I told him that, he cried. Wow. He just um, wow. and and I and 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 I, I, you know, just that really really hit me. Um, so you, because for large periods of time you literally had no money and you were foraging in the kind of intertidal zone, uh-huh. um, and sometimes you couldn't get food or the weather was so bad you couldn't get food. So I mean, what what was that like? Uh, and um, what were the kind of what? First of all, what were the situations that put you in the position where you actually couldn't get any food? Um, normally, the really big stretches, you know, I couldn't. I had Jet with me; she was my priority. So um, I'd make sure that I had dog food for her all the time. Often or not, weighing down my bag to a point where I couldn't even fit anything in. So you know, as long as I had a few carrots and stuff, I didn't need that. But that was a luxury. Just take some carrots and a few potatoes. So I could always make a stew from it but yeah it's definitely the bigger bigger sections but often or not you know I did um, choose that as well you know because I th- one thing I think that's you know I've always done throughout my life is I've always put myself in a position where I have no choice if, you know, if I really want to do something but something scares me about it or I'm questioning it um, then the only way to deal with that is just commit to it and that's what I'd often do so that's how I became good at it um, simply by once I'd walked a day and a half, then I had nothing, you know, so that was it. My whole day changed. It was right, okay, I could probably walk for about this long. We'll get up earlier in the morning, you know, so that I can get there late, sorry, so I can get to where I want to be roughly earlier. Pitch up the tent, that's it, spend the rest of the afternoon after about two o'clock. But the difficult part is, certainly in Scotland, is um, the more north you go, you don't get very much light during the winter. So that became difficult. So I was doing really short days, my priority being um, that in the morning, made sure that I had food and then I made sure I had food in the afternoon often just walking for an hour and a half that's all it was but I kind of like that though you know it was everything was a challenge but it's a beautiful challenge you know it's just all it is is just like I said before just taking you back to what you actually actually need and it's fun to do there's nothing nicer than going out you know working hard during the day going out finding a water source and once you've found a place to stay going and foraging your food you know you're hungry you've burnt loads of calories during the day and I'm, I'm a hungry person. Um, and by the end of all of that, you've got the fire on, it's peaceful, you've relaxed. Jet's in the tent, she's sleeping, she's had her food, and then suddenly I'm just sat, you know, with a meal, just, just the satisfaction um, mm. that you get from that. There's nothing like going to Aldi's and buying, no. <laughs> you know, buying a roast dinner and then sticking it in the oven. It's a totally different ball game. Um, yeah, not enough people do it, it's sad. But sometimes you'd arrive somewhere and there was just nothing Oh yeah, to get so one hundred percent. So where I thought, know, yeah, sorry. So where I thought, um, right, that this because you start getting good. I'd say on the maps, 
understanding the layout of the land and even just looking down the coast at times. Problems with Scotland, there's so many ins and outs and locks that you can't see what's around the corner. And yeah, there was definitely times where I thought, yeah, this part of the coast is this type of rock. You know, um, there's lots of seaweed and mussels would be around here, depending on the time of year. Um, you can eat them and whelks and that are pretty much everywhere, but often not, that just doesn't happen. For whatever reason, that's something to this day, I, I still don't know, but sometimes there are just blank spots along a whole stretch. And yeah, it's, it's not nice. So what was the longest time you went without food? Oh, probably before I even started the walk, but um, uh, easy. When I first started, I did Anglesey in five days and I didn't eat. Um, that was 126 miles. I, I came off that an absolute wreck. Um, that was because I was new to the walk though. Um, and oh, this, this difference going five days. So if it, you know, uh, fasting was quite a common thing for yeah. vision quests and those kind of things. Um, but normally, you know, you weren't necessarily walking all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're kind of sometimes isolated in a in an igloo yeah, or something. Just or, um, conserving energy, basically. Or, yeah. or a hut or some, you know, designated wild spot. But if you're walking every day and you're not eating for five days, yeah. that is hardcore. Yeah, I wasn't well after yeah. that. Lesson learned, you know, but I look back on it now and I, I'm glad that it's happened. I, I, can't, I just try and learn from everything what, what did you about. learn from that experience um don't do anglesey again <laughs> no, no i didn't um i think what i learned more than anything was you know i love limits and what the body's capable of because mm. i just don't think people realize anywhere near the potential they have um, and what the body's capable of doing but i think it's a really good skill to have so i now know that i can bust out a good few miles if i was ever in a really dangerous situation um that i can bust out a lot of miles for that amount of time without any food and still be okay and that's a comfort blanket for me you know mm-hmm. so that that's i'd rather the positives <laughs> um so yeah i now know that i can do that and it's possible i yeah. didn't know that before that i think that's one of the um if i was to tie it in with this thing of i mean not saying you're a boy becoming a man i think we're about the same you're 40 41 yeah. 41 yeah um so it doesn't really apply to you but if someone was listening to this and they were um, you know, late teens, early twenties, that kind of thing, and wanting to, to kind of find their own power, I suppose. That's what it's all about. You know, becoming becoming an adult is about uh, gaining the next level of power. Yeah. Like, a bit like a computer game, you know, yeah. you level up. And part of that is uh, knowing that you, how, how deep your capacities are. Um, of course, because you're, yeah, exactly. uh, because you because you, and, and you only find that out by being tested. You've got to push them, otherwise you'll never yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, I agree hundred percent. That's so important. It is all part of growing, and also, I, I despise the fact that the words like mistakes and failure. Um, yeah, even from school, you know, you make a mistake, you're made to feel bad about it, or you fail at something, you feel bad. No, no, no. They are so important. It's probably one of the most important things you can do. But, you know, I've always said this phrase that. When you're a, you know, a baby and you're learning to walk, you don't just get up and walk, you fall over so many times before you start, so you've got to make those mistakes. And you know, the Anglesey experience was a mistake for me, but you know, I learned from it, I got better at foraging, I grew, grew from that. And yeah, I think all those things are really, really important and we're always gonna do it throughout our life. And I never really thought of it like that until I was on this. Um, I never really did. So another thing that you know, I just learned how important to, to make some hiccups, you know. Yeah. To balls up once in a while. Yes, yeah. and when a, when a mistake 
really hurts, that's when it, it, it becomes really ingrained in your soul, so yeah, to speak, yeah, and, and you really don't well, you know want to make that mistake in the future. Well, you probably will, but um, I, I you, you've really learned a deep lesson there. Whereas um, when when you're when you're in uh, the social context that we normally are in. Um, your mistakes kind of get diffused amongst the other people around you. So you can make you can make them make mistakes, and people around you will pick up the pieces. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why we're such a successful species. Yeah. But when you're on your own, um, the mistake comes directly back to you yeah. instantly, and you have to live with the consequences. So That's you kind it. of learn to take responsibility, to be careful, um, to plan. But also, and to take you have to take ownership of your mistakes. And I, I think one of the things I really admire in traits in people is is to own, um, to, to own their mistakes, to own who they are, own their flaws, all of those kind of things. Rather than it, it's easy to pretend that you don't have those things um, by kind of bluffing with people. But when it's just you on your own. There's, There's no one to bluff to. Yeah, yeah. You have to own it because it comes directly back to you. Of course it does. And, and, and yeah, with, yeah. along with that, the strength, you know, it's how you as a person deal with that. You know, if I make a mistake, I never go and say to people I've made a mistake. You know, I get into my mind and say, what, what did I do wrong here? Okay, well, it's how you react to that that I think, you know, really defines you as who you are as a person, really. If you make a big mistake or you, th you think you failed or you've tried it years for something and it hasn't worked and you think you failed, how you react to the next stage is a very defining point. And I think that's another thing that I've learned having so much time on my own. I used to get myself wound up about things stupidly and um, whereas no, um, how you react to that is, is, you know, if I go and fall over and break a leg somewhere um, and I'll know why I've done it because probably 90% of the time you do it is because you're tired. Um, I, it happened to me once, um, I was walking along and I knew I was tired and stupidly I carried on because um, I was just in that mindset, that zone, the mind's a powerful thing and I should have just stopped but instead of uh, stopping I did an extra few miles, lo and behold got clumsy and my ankle just went and I was 14 miles away from any coast, any road, anything like this, literally at the bottom of the cliffs so I ended up having to make a crutch and it took I think two and a half days to drag myself back to you know the safety of a road. I never make that mistake again. Yeah, I didn't panic. You know yeah. that's that's the key. It's just not panicking, just sitting, okay, and breathing. That is such an important lesson to learn. Yeah, it, um, I knew someone who um, cut into that on a Friday. Um, they were a carpenter. It was like it was the it was sort of four forty-five on a Friday in the afternoon. Last thing, and it was like, ah, uh, if feeling tired, um, just wanted to do one more cut and with a circular saw cut into wow. his hands like that deep. Nasty. Um, <clears throat> he actually had it fixed and it was amazing what, what they'd done, but nasty thing. And it was, it was that, that kind of thing where, again, this is a really valuable thing to know in life is when to uh, make a call on the, the situation in the yeah. present moment. Because what you were describing you know, I, I know I do this all the time. I have a plan, yeah. but like I'm gonna, that's that's the goal. I'm just gonna, uh, you, you know, like a bull, just charge for it. And then sometimes you know it's not right, yeah, but, you yeah. get, but you're getting this weird kind of like tunnel vision and you just, um, and 
lots of people do dangerous work. Of course. Uh, um, and, and I do a lot myself with chainsaws, power tools, circular saws, t- um, all those kind of things. And uh, t- felling, tre- felling trees is extremely That's dangerous. Hard work, yeah. uh, because trees do all sorts of crazy <laughs> stuff. You know, it's better. You've really got to be on it. And if you're working with, with other people, part of the team, because you were in the army as well. Yeah, <clears> yeah. So this is all part of that kind of culture of having having each other's back. Of course. Uh, and that's something you you learn by putting yourself as an individual in these situations is you you develop that kind of um, it's, it's like a spider sense like Spider-Man of yeah. kind of like it is. yeah this doesn't feel, I'm just yeah it doesn't feel right it's going with your gut on that isn't it yeah yeah I know I totally understand that um, and it's absolutely valuable that again it's all part of the learning process isn't it knowing your limits and um, you know, if I, that incident of, of me hurting my ankle changed the scope of my entire walk. And I was at a point where I'd realised perhaps it was very, okay, I want to get this far today, and then that'll leave me, blah, blah, blah. So I was going through that almost routine process, which I promised myself I wouldn't do. And because of that, I really hurt myself. So I made a pact to myself as from that minute, right, just go, walk, you know, you can probably just stop when you need to, save enough energy for the next day, don't make stupid mistakes like that again. So it was a game changer. I'm glad it happened. <laughs> um, yeah, it reminds me. So I think Ray Mears was was saying uh, something in one of his shows um, about drinking water. That if if you've got a limited amount of water, um, you should and, and you're getting thirsty, you should drink it because if you if you try and ration it too much, you'll start making mistakes as you get more dehydrated, course, and then you know it's this kind of weighing up those kind of things. Yeah, you know? it is um, exactly that. Yeah, if you know what you're doing. You know, if you are running out of water, you just drink as much of it as you can. And then people, a lot of people have died from making the mistake of drinking urine because mm. they've drunk it when it's starting to go the wrong colour. So it's basically all the toxins coming out. Whereas if you drink it pretty much whilst it's still half decent, then you can survive it. So I'd rather drink the lot and then have regurgitate that yeah. and, then, and then do it again yeah. rather than, like you said, sipping it. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't ever gone quite so far. Hopefully you don't have to, yeah, yeah. I did a few times in the Paris. <laughs> in, in the pub? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So boys there's, boys. There's, there's, um, there's, a, there's a big difference between doing something voluntarily and doing something involuntarily. So uh, solitary confinement is universally recognised as the kind of worst punishment for humans. Yeah. Because it's, it's um, you know, we are such social beings. Yeah. But it's the fact it's you didn't choose it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if you choose to do something, um, uh, like be on your own, it's an entirely different experience. Yeah, of course it is. Um, and uh, so I think that's that's an interesting distinction there between you know be, being kind of in control of. Of, of, of that versus not being in control yeah yeah it's um, two different it's two different things isn't it I suppose if you're in control of something and you made the choice to do it um, it's very different to someone saying to you right go and sit in that room for the next five days um, but again you know it's, it's how you approach that isn't it mm. um, if I was told to be locked in a room for five days yeah I wouldn't particularly enjoy it but I wouldn't come out a mess I'd have learned something <laughs> yeah yeah well so you find so a way this, this is one thing that people worry about spending a lot of time on their own is going mad um and and I, I when I you know did my 
walkabout. Uh, I certainly experienced some weird behaviour yeah. and, and some kind of... Uh, I was kind of transitioning out of some self-harming um, behaviours to do yeah. with, uh, you know, um, different substances and um, eating the wrong foods and, uh, you know, just kind of mental things. And some of these would, would come up and, um, you know, I was quite extreme about my diet. And I remember one time just thinking, oh, I'm just going to eat some ice cream. I'm just going to get an ice cream. And I ate it. And then I ate another one. And I think I ate three or four. <laughs> and then I forced myself to walk up this really big hill as a kind of punishment. And I was like, so I was doing all this kind of weird stuff. And, um, and I, I was, I, I didn't take um, any tobacco with me. I was trying to sort of stop smoking. Yeah, yeah. But I'd end up kind of like hanging around pubs sometimes and like bumming cigarettes on yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, and I wasn't drinking alcohol because, uh, you know, you couldn't carry it with me and there's no point and, and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I was a bit of a kind of binge drinker on weekends, yeah. those sort of things. And, you know, that would kind of creep in and I'd suddenly find myself kind of, <clears throat> you know, going going to pubs and, and then I'd, I'd get drunk and then I'd end up back at my tent and I'd just be a complete mess yeah. and I'd be crying and all of this, this weird sort of things happened. Yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, what, did, did you, what kind of, did you experience any weird, weirdness um, come up inside you that was unexpected? I mean... Or perhaps you might have been expecting it to, to happen. No, I, I, weirdness probably no. I mean, I think people would class me as quite weird anyway. <laughs> Some of the stuff, you know, what I'm doing, but I don't think weirdness as such, but I think there was certain things that I'd realised perhaps the isolation had affected me. You know, three and a half months on your own island, um, if you would just, just go straight from a house, from here, for example, and just be plonked there, um, would probably be great for about three days, and then afterwards it's like, oh dear, okay, I'm stuck here. And how you choose that as a mindset is up to you. But I, what I think I realised, um, and probably going back to the drinking thing you were just talking about, when I came back into more um, built-up areas, Inverness probably being my first, um, and it's actually after I met Kate. Um, I got a lot of followers, and I don't like taking anything from anybody. But every now and then, these followers would be coming down with bottles of whiskey, you know, all the way along the coast, and probably not realizing that there was a, probably a period of time where I'd been drinking every single night, um, because I was just there. I was alone in the tent, um, um, and I think that is probably a repercussion of having so much time on my own, and obviously not drinking. To then being back in amongst people, maybe I was finding that hard to process, I don't know, mm. because I knew what was coming, I was coming to the busiest cities in England, and um, I wasn't particularly looking forward to that, because because I set myself a challenge of walking the UK coast, I had to finish this, and I, I'm going to finish it, but I wasn't looking forward to coming to the cities again in the built-up areas, and just one day Kate turned around to me, I was like, mate, you know, do you realise you're knocking back pretty much one little bottle of whiskey a night, and I'm like, wow. It took somebody else to tell me that. Mm. And only recently, when I reunited with my mum again, you know, she would tell me that I'd be phoning her up drunk and stuff like this. And, um, and, the only, and she, it was her that made me realise. She turned around to me and said, look, Chris, the only reason we did that is because you've literally been on your own in a tent every single night now for nearly four years. Uh, well, three, three years before I met Kate. And when I sat back and thought about it, I thought, mm, well, maybe that was the case. Um, yeah. you know, it hit me quite hard, that did, if I'm honest with you. Mm. Because I... 
I loved it. So I, it's hard because I don't know whether it was the fact that I was coming into busier areas and I didn't want to leave where I'd just been because I just had so much fun and I learned so much. I found my place. And then one of my things in life now is I simply will never do unless it's to help somebody else. Anything that I don't want to do again, life's too short. And I was suddenly in that position where I do have to go and do something that I want to do. So I was so conflicted. You know, in my head it was like, oh, should I just go back and carry on doing this case to Scotland? So there's a real little battle in my head that went on as to whether to actually do that. And that's no disrespect to England or, you know, the, the southeast coast of Scotland. It was just cities, you know, not places I want to be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, surreal. I didn't think I, I went stir-crazy or anything. I always kept myself occupied when I was walking. I was always singing. And I'd become so... There's almost like an obsession of coming up with creative ideas. You know, I'd play guitar and I was coming up with songs in my head. So all day I was busy in here. But good things. Yeah, you, you didn't have a guitar with you? No, no, yeah. I didn't have a guitar. Once in a while, you know, um, when I came into like a hamlet or a village and I had followers there, they'd say, look, we, only, we know you play guitar, do you want to borrow one for an evening? And I would. Um, but I really love doing that sort of stuff. And even now, I'm still writing my own songs. Um, I have a guitar now and writing my own songs from stuff that I was writing in my head on an island, you know, so it's great. Um, but yeah, what I mean by this is, I suppose, is that coming back into the busier parts, no longer am I thinking so much like that anymore. I'm not giving myself the time to come up with, you know, I, I love history and I love nature and I love doing videos about that kind of stuff. And I'm suddenly finding myself where I don't have much time to concentrate on that because, um, you know, we do have quite a few followers and every day, just people waiting for us on the coast and you spend three quarters of your day walking with other people asking you questions. And over in Scotland, it was the perfect balance because I'd be out in the world for a long time and I was looking forward to catching up with a few people and saying hello to people that was following um, but now it's a constant so yeah I'm yeah, looking forward to getting back out there mm. <laughs> um, so the uh, one thing I wanted to to because this is in would be interesting for people to to hear okay. is what did you eat when you were foraging so you know people think of um, you know, they, 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 so let's say someone was listening, was listening to this or watching this and they were like, I fancy doing something like this. Um, but the foraging aspect of it, I just wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. Um, and the coast is a very, is a particularly rich Absolutely. place for foraging. And yeah. if you look at a map of on the world where people live, basically people live around the coast. Yeah. Um, yes, it's like for like Australia and places like this, yeah. you know, it's all coastal. So what, you know, what, what, what was the, the what were you eating? Um, so the hard thing about foraging in the position that I was in is, you know, you touched briefly on Ray Mears earlier, love the guy, um, I think he's the best out there if I'm honest with you. And he, when you see Ray Mears, he, he'll set up a camp, you know, he'll go out and explore, find the good foraging spots, so he knows where it all is, um, which is great. I'd love, you know, I've often not set up camp for a few days, but otherwise, I'm on the move every single day. So often or not, where I pitch camp is somewhere where it's rich with things like shellfish. I predominantly lived off shellfish for, for so long. Good job you're not allergic. I know, but the thing is I hate them. And ironically, yeah. I'm not a fan of walking. I just like what it brings. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, shellfish was the main thing for me. Foraging is such a, a sketchy subject, you know, um, to teach people if you're not teaching them face-to-face, -face, for example, because I never wanted to do foraging videos and stuff when I was out in the wilds, because if I was to teach somebody something and 
they made one mistake, you know, you pick the wrong type of whelk, or you pick a dog whelk or something like this, they can be pretty nasty. And mm -hmm. So I kind of just gathered all my experiences, but um, moving forward every single day, you're in a different place every day, you never know what's there. So, which is predominantly why I stuck to shellfish. I'd make stews with even seaweed. Seaweed's so good for you. Um, but they're even with seaweeds, there are toxic seaweeds. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I so that's what I mean. memory, they're the ones that sort of like with all the thin, they look like trees. That's exactly You know, yeah, trees, yeah. whereas the kind of, uh, the bladder rack and, and those kind of, that, what's that one that's like a kind of strip of leather, like a bell. It is, uh, it's called, uh, names, this is the thing, with foraging. I, I've, eaten, I've eaten that stuff and got properly ill because yeah. I, and you don't I ate do the stuff that was, um, uh, it was it was it wasn't it was wasn't fresh. It was you, you know you were telling to me the other day about this this kind of bit where it doesn't get covered by water enough of the time. Yes, yeah, and, and I I had serious diarrhoea, yeah. and that was just the perfectly edible type of seaweed. Wow, wow, mm. it is yeah. With things like mussels, people make the mistake in, with mussels. But in summer, the mussels that are closest to the shore, obviously once the tide's gone out, it's spending eight hours a day out of water, so algae starts to grow and. Yeah, deadly for you so you go on a low tide and then get them from there but um i've always said that with, with foraging it, it is important to know not what to eat obviously you know even si simple things like stinging nettles there's other plants in early spring that look very much like stinging nettles um sorry not stinging nettles like garlic um mm. oh, like yeah. wild garlic yeah. you pick the wrong one and that's it you yeah. yeah you do that in the wild when there's no one there to help you so the well, there was, that, there was that very famous um, story, Into the Wild, the film, yes, that's the book, and that's how that guy ended yeah. up dying, wasn't exactly it? Berries. That. Yeah. Exactly that. Well, he thought they were berries. I think they were potato seeds or something, well, weren't they? Yeah, I think they were some thing that stopped his body absorbing nutrients. That's it. It starved him, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very sad. Very sad. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really important. I, I will start doing a lot more on it, but... I'd rather people be face to face. Sure, it's, it, it is. It is. It's dangerous. Yeah, it's um, dangerous, but thing. possible. I mean, it's, you know, it's really possible. Um, well, you've garden outside. You've got dandelions, mm. daisies. You can eat the love. You, know, you took rabbit, rabbit snares with you yeah, as well. Yeah, rabbit snares. Yeah. And did, I, did you I catch my teeth out with, with, with a rabbit snare? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, just to quickly tell the story because this is a good one. Uh, going back to that thing of um, making mistakes, uh, trying to foresee what can happen you got you know you've got a plan for the knowns the, the and then the unknowns the unexpected and you kind of like limit the possibility of damage yeah um and um i'm sure you were quite if if you know you if you tell the story um uh that would be great and i'm i'm sure you were quite annoyed with yourself perhaps for making that yeah, mistake yeah it was yeah so what's, what was the story so it's quite simple really i was in barra um which is the bottom section of the Outer Hebrides, beautiful, beautiful place. And I, I was walking in stupidly. Had, even to this day, I'm annoyed with myself for doing it. This happened, but whatever. I had Jet's dog bowl on the side of my bag clipped onto a carabiner. I basically used a, a pen knife to get through it. So I just didn't have any room in my bag, so I needed it for supplies. So I clipped it to the edge. And typically in the Hebrides, you know, the winds can just come from nowhere. It really just be lovely one minute and then bang. You know, you're getting hit by them. And that's exactly what happened. The bowl had come round and hit me in the side of the face. And because I was the only one there, I'd be safe to say it knocked me out. <laughs> but well, I don't know too much, you know. So all I know is I kind of come round and I was all fuzzy. And it had cracked my tooth in half, pushing the, the, the back edge 
down into my gum, which was effectively right on my nerves. Um, and it was awful. And I'm not a big fan of, I love teeth, but I don't like anything to do with, I'm mm. not a fan of going to a dentist or anything. So um, again, I had that sort of like second of, I had like a, a second of panic and then straight away it just kicked in, right? Just practice what you preach now. Just sit there, gather your thoughts and street, tears streaming down me, blood down my face. and. Um, so actually, before I went for the whole process of trying to get this thing out, I pitched up the tent, I got jet sorted. Um, and then whilst I was doing that, I remembered that I'd been given a hip flask of whiskey um, that was sat right at the bottom of my bag. So I pulled it all out and then just poured the whiskey on this thing and then drunk it. <laughs> so I basically necked half a thing of whiskey. And then, uh, yeah, I just used the rabbit snare. And I, I had to use my phone as a mirror um, to try and get this thing in, but because it had gone in the way it had, it was so awkward, so I couldn't get it. I was there for about an hour and a half, just trying to get this thing out, and then I did get it on camera, I got it all on video, um, and eventually I went to pull this out, and I got a rock on the end of it, and then I went to, because I wanted to show people how not to panic in these mm. situations and how to deal with this kind of stuff, <laughs> and the next minute this rock just dropped, and the thing come poofing out, and then I spewed <laughs> everywhere. And then after that, realised that I was a bit too drunk off the whiskey. <laughs> I used it as a obviously an mm, antiseptic yeah, to yeah. get rid of it, but it was another example of you know just not panicking. That could have easily, I would say, get wrong. It wasn't exactly going to kill me or anything like this, but it's not a nice place to be when it's so severe. The pain, mm -hmm. and you start running around panicking. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Whereas, chill, yeah. think for a second now. What's the most logical thing to do? And then do it. Rabbits. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Rabbits. Yeah, yeah, it's really resourceful. It was either that or an ice ice skate from a like castaway. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you just gotta harness and just think. Yeah. You know, if I had a panic, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, and yeah. I wouldn't have thought of the whiskey. Yeah, either. that's true. Yeah, yes, yeah, because panic shuts down that's your ability to see the bigger picture and all yeah. of that. Just take yeah, a step yeah, back. Totally. Okay. Yeah. And that's with every aspect in life. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's another thing you were telling me the other day, which is related to this thing of panicking, was you were coming down a mountain, uh, so the weather is a big thing when you're in the wild. It's, it's all about the weather. It's everything, yeah. And in uh, the, uh, the highlands and islands of Scotland, weather is really severe. Yeah. And you were up a mountain, mm -hmm. uh, and then there was you were coming down the mountain. There was a whiteout. Yeah. Uh, and then um, you made the decision to yeah, rather just, than keep going to. That's stop. it. You know, I. This sounds really crazy. I used to spend a lot of my time. You know, I used to do uh, in the evenings when my daughter was asleep, if I wasn't playing guitar, I'd be watching stuff on YouTube. And often or not, people will watch all of the things that you should do. Um, I had this little thing about watching people that had made mistakes. You know, I loved watching climbing documentaries and, and you know disaster documentaries of people that have gone climbing and what they did wrong. So I learned from all this kind of stuff. And yeah, again, you're absolutely right. It's all back to the panic thing. You know, I was on top of a mountain. The winds did come in. It was absolutely brutal. Um, I would say a lot of people would have um, really panicked at that point and just done what a human naturally would try and do, just get down, just get down. but I couldn't see a thing. Um, so yeah, I'd seen in a documentary once about this and, and then I just thought, right, you know what, just remain calm. Again, the same thing, just sit down, have a second, have a think, what am I going to do? What's the most logical thing to do is wait for this to pass. It could have taken days, I didn't know, I couldn't, didn't have any signal or anything where I was, so... Yeah, just pitch up the tent, um, sat in there. I was nervous and very scared the whole time because until you're in that position, it's very hard to describe to somebody what it's actually like when you're in that position. 
um, it's not a nice place to be. You suddenly realise how vulnerable you are, and just a little ant basically in, in a swimming pool. If it's just yeah, it's very scary, but it's all about keeping calm, isn't it? And just learning from all that sort of stuff. Mm. And that's a, that's a uni- you could apply that lesson to, you okay. know, uh, just people, someone living in a city or whatever, you know, sort of normal modern life. Um, that kind of the storm on the mountain is a different kind of event yeah, in your it's, life. It's scary. Um, so, you know, it might be some catastrophe in your business or something, uh, and you might panic and make some bad decisions yeah. and rush into it. But, exactly. you know, to do the kind of equivalent of pitch your tent, uh, take some time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's be the calm in the yeah. storm, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, just take that step back and have a think about it. Yeah, you're, you're so right. You can do that in anything, like at work. Um, just anything it's all about just and I, I, I can tell you this because I didn't do that before I would you know mm. rush into something and then end up making the situation even worse but yeah it's all about taking a step back and just saying okay this hasn't gone particularly the way I planned so how do we make it right there's there's something different about so the, the, the people that live in the Hebrides mm. for example they seem very, very different to the people that I've met, uh, you know, more often in my life yeah. uh, on the mainland. And there's something, there's something about the isolation, the quietness, the remoteness of it, the, the view, because the Hebrides, are, a lot of them are quite small islands, yeah. and you, you're just, wherever you look, there's, a, there's an enormous expanse of sea you're looking yeah. out on. Um, the kind of the beauty of the the, the, the the all the clouds and the sea, the different co- you get all these rich colours changing all day, and you know you um, you add all of that in the different the different kind of lives people live, the, the crofting, um, the, the 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 fishing. It's a very very different type of lifestyle, and it makes a different person. Yeah. So, how would you describe the difference between the people that live in these? wild spots you know i absolutely categorically agree with you on everything you said that they are a different breed um i think a lot of that is down to obviously smaller communities you know there's not many people on the islands as there is for example in cities and stuff i've always said that i don't think you could be more isolated than living in a big city um everyone really talks to each other you can go to london and walk past a thousand people a day and no one says hello Mm. um you go to somewhere like the Outer Hebrides, or the Hebrides, and every man, dog, woman, child will all wave their hands to you. Every car that drives past you waves their hands. Um, I've got some wonderful little things with the Hebrides and even Shetland and Orkney as well. Um, even the kids, young kids. I, I was having food with a family. Um, a young lad ran in. The weather was awful outside and it really wasn't good. And he goes, oh, Mum, I'm just going to go and pop over to, I forget her name, basically an elderly ladies um, to go and see if she's okay if she needs anything and I was just like this wow you know, did you ask him to do that and she said no no they just do it they all do it around here so they literally go around to the old lady old elderly and say no do you need a coal do you need wood do you need me to go to the shop for you is there anything you need so they, they look after each other um, incredibly and I love that but I, when I I didn't feel like there was a place for me um, not I wouldn't say in Swansea but anywhere I went because I just I didn't like that busy rushed um, madness sort of attitude to life it just wasn't for me and I realised when I went to the islands that actually there is a place that I would happily fit in somewhere like that because it's a much more relaxed way of life 
um, you know, what can I say? You know, I've sat and had meals with 95-year-old Hebridean women that, you know, wouldn't let me get off my chair. We sat and drank whiskey together. She made us a race dinner. Um, but she loved it. You could just see she absolutely loved it. And, yeah, and we talked briefly about that kind of stuff and she said everyone just supports each other out here. The winds are brutal. We need each other. Um, you need everyone in a big city. You've got everything you need there. So, so mm. it cuts all the people out, if you like. So yeah, I think that's why it is. Much smaller communities, the fact that the weather's brutal, they've got ancestral roots dating back from those islands to, well, forever. Um, and so that's, you know, it's important, isn't it? That sort of thing, I think it's very important. And yeah, I think that's probably why it is. And I absolutely adore it. I, I think really do. Um, look after <clears throat> each other. And yeah, I say I, I, I know what you mean. There's a, there's a friendliness yeah. there um, that you that's different to yes, other places, and also a kind of just a sort of uh, a slowness. Yeah. Um, uh, and and a yeah a, a kind of laid backness, a little bit like what we think of the sort of southern European of course, yeah. type of vibe. And um, it's just interesting to, to spend time with people like that. It when is. you spend a lot of time in, you know, the other circumstances. I've got to go now, I've got to go. That's it, it yeah. And, uh, and it, it changes, when you see somebody living like that, it, it, um, and you experience, you spend time with them, it actually changes, you, you're like, wow, you notice the difference. Yeah, wow, yeah. This, these people are different. You really can notice the difference. A very quick story, um, it's a perfect example. So... You look at the streets of London, you know, you walk by a curb, you've got cars beeping, ambulances going off everywhere and, and all sorts. I remember being, I think it was in Harris, and there was a road that was on the coast, you know, it was literally the water, so I had to be on it. And then, so a car pulls up, um, and I beeps the horn and then pulls in. Um, but he was on the road, and he was obviously a follower, so I went over and started chatting to him. Now another car come, um, which he was stopping him. And then another car come, and it was stopping him. And I was like, oh, really sorry, guys, you know, it'll be, be two seconds. The guy gets out of the other car, comes over, oh, everything all right, guys. Next minute, there's nearly a queue of cars, and they've all come out to come and say hello. Having no idea, there was no one, oh, come on, we've got to go. Um, it was beautiful. I loved it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, everyone is just so chilled. Um, yeah, just can't beat that, can you? Can't beat it. If that had been me doing that somewhere in a big city, I'd be having them swearing at me and honking horns yeah, and all yeah. sorts, but they yeah. were just, ah, oh, something interesting here. Oh, well, you know, let's go and have a look. <laughs> yeah. Next minute, we're involved in a conversation. I actually made friends, really good friends with two of them. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, is awesome. awesome man. So you, were, you were, have been describing to me the last couple of days how you developed this sort of um, sense of, you, when you go to a spot, you, you, suddenly, you can kind of pick up all the things that make it a good place yeah. to uh, for a habitation yeah. uh, you know whether you're camping in a tent or whatever and you you become you develop the same kind of intuition that our ancestors did Absolutely. of they find a place they, they see all the resources are all kind of like it's like the stars align you know in terms of resources yeah. and you're like this is a good place yeah um, I love all of that stuff yeah so what you know what? Uh, what were the things you started to notice, um, and you know what was that experience like? Because this this is this is tapping into an aspect of our um, our psyche that people don't normally exercise. Sure. Uh, I so. Well, I suppose we exercise it in a different way. You go to a high street, 
and you you know if you if you took someone from Papua New Guinea uh, from a, tri hill, a hill tribe in Papua New Guinea and put them in in Oxford Street or something they would be totally disoriented oh, yeah. they'd, they'd be like where do I go <laughs> to do anything so it's, it's you, you take someone from Oxford Street and put them in uh, you, you know the west coast of Scotland on their own or something a similar experience might happen in terms of like they might camp somewhere and then the tide comes in yeah exactly. or they camp somewhere and a tree falls on them i mean sure. you know there's all sorts of things that happen. so so what what was that experience like for you? um you know i love that sort of i love history and how our ancestors yeah it's something that's always pickled my brain you know how did they live um all this kind of stuff always going on in my mind i love it i love it i really do and i think once i'd become really good and competent as a camper you know and i I knew to be aware of the things that were a threat to me, for example, things like weather and all this kind of stuff. Um, I started just choosing out spots and over time I'd be like, oh, you know, that'd be an interesting place. I could see down from the side of a hill or a mountain or something and that'd be a really interesting place to camp. It's got everything I need. You can always tell where the water's running down because the trees clump much closer together and there's a small dip so you can just see this faint line. So we know we've got a water source there. And I would say 80% of the time, in the middle of nowhere, um, when I'd seen in the distance a place that I think would be a really good place to camp for all those reasons, you know, water supply, potentially good for foraging, it's got a little inlet where you could perhaps go and have a bath, all this kind of stuff, um, there would be some sort of ruin there. And I'm not just talking ruin from the 16, 1700s and way back. Um, and you can tell the difference because the older they are, tend to be the more submerged they are. I could literally look over the opposite side of the lock yeah. and say, that's where I'm going to camp. There's going to be a good spot there. You, yeah. just, you just get it. I mean, it's not because it's the most greenest, perfect, flattest. Often not, that's not the case. But it's just the whole, if the wind suddenly decides to take a change, then, you know, this is a great place to camp because if it's coming from the north, I can go behind this. If it's coming from the south, I can go behind this and so on and so forth. Or, you know, majority of it's mountain anyway, so you're protected from one side. So it's all those little things that you've really got to, it's absolutely key, it's vital. But you know, going back to what we were saying, 80% of the time there would be some sort of old ruin there, some where you could just about see the stones, whereas some I could see from higher up, where it's just like there's a patch of you know, darker grass, if mm -hmm. you like, that you can see mm -hmm. into a, a man-made shape. And so it's really fascinating. So in the, in the evenings, when I'd be in these kind of places, I'd just sit there and just you know, try and work out you know, what, what, what made this perfect for what potentially could have been a family, Often or not, you'll get places like that where just um, sheep herders just go and spend a couple of days there herding the sheep in and then going back home, you know, getting them that direction. So there's all this kind of stuff, a lot of Viking houses, you know, Viking stuff all over the place. And often or not, I'd be walking through somewhere and I'd see something and I'd plot it on my phone um, where it was and I'd go back and ask somebody and then I'd be, oh, no, we had no idea that was there, you know, bloody hell. So they'd then go out and have a look at it and next minute, yeah, it is something. So. I don't know, I've, I'm just fascinated in how I think that, you know, our long-term ancestors dating back, you know, thousands and thousands of years, um, are not given enough credit for, you know, we celebrate this day and age, you know, days for painting, days for dogs, days for ladies, days for men and all this kind of stuff, but no one actually really says anything about our ancestors and they lived through an ice age and um, they did it all just off, you know, land mm. um, didn't have any machinery any metal and it. it fascinates me what they how they did it I remember going to, I was in Shetland to give you an example living outside for so long in the cold all of the time is you do I don't say 
get used now it's not possible. You don't suddenly not become cold, but you start becoming used to it. Mm-hmm. So I knew my hands were cold, you know, I definitely knew, but it wasn't bothering me because it just happened so many times before it's become normal. And I was in Shetland and there's a mock Viking house that's built on top of where a Viking house was built. And it's the very northern island in Shetland, which is uh, Unst, um, the northern point being Muckleflugge. And I was walking past and it was Christmas um, the next day and I could smell um, from the houses all of the roast dinners that were you know, being prepared for. And, oh, I can't tell you, I literally had a tin of beans and I had um, some Yorkshire puddings that were frozen and that was my Christmas dinner, I was just going to tip them on top. But I walked into this house um, and it was a cold day, you know, we had hailstone, brutal winds, actually one cut me. And I just walked into this Viking house and the second I shut the door, it was like someone had turned the century heating on. Mm. So I started getting an understanding of actually it's not as bad as what, we've been too spoiled, um, it's not as bad as what I thought it was for them. Because like, they had good stuff, good gear, good clothes, you know, for hides from animals and all this sort of stuff, you know, not top man jumpers. and um, Yeah, I was just learning so much more about that sort of stuff. And I just, so fascinating mm. and how resilient we are and, and how and I hate to say it kind of weak we've become um, and that's because of the disconnection of nature yeah I think we're sort of you've, a lot of modern humans think that humans have got more intelligent or something as time's gone on mm-hmm. and I feel like we've I'm a firm believer in multiple intelligences. So yeah, there's no such thing as like a single measure of oh, intelligence. No, intelligence. So there, there are things that we, we've developed certain lines of intelligence uh, way beyond what our ancestors had yeah. done. But they had lines of uh, intelligence that are way beyond what, what we have. And yeah. so, you know, some of those things we kind of lost. Of um, and I think um, you know, one of the an experience I had of experiencing ancient um, architecture and how effective it was, was I spent three days and two nights inside a chambered cairn in the Brickleaf Mountains in Sligo. And it was made of nothing but uh, slabs of stone and then uh, you know, large rocks on top of it. Uh, that was it, just, yeah. just dry stone um, and the weather was horrendous outside and that's one of the reasons why I spent so much time in there and I was dry as a bone yeah. inside not a single drop of water came in yeah. which I, I could scarcely believe it you know I could see what how it what it was built of yeah. and I just it was mate baffling to me how it is. Actually happened it was just so well built and this thing was it's still there f- 5,000 years yeah. you know, people don't know exactly how old these no. things are but they you know about five thousand years old. Yeah, it's an Iron Age sort of. When I was thing, sleeping yeah. in that that cairn, I remember saying to myself, "Probably there there might not at this this night there might not be a single person in Europe sleeping inside an older building than I am." Yeah, right now, um, that's quite a thought. And it is it's thought provoking, isn't it? And then when you're in there, it's just kind of like you said, the architecture. And the fact of the matter is, it's still standing. You know, a modern house won't be standing in five thousand years' time. There's absolutely no doubts about it. So. You know, they, they did things properly, but for the right reasons. They had to. They didn't want a house that looked really pretty and everything. They just wanted to be out of the cold and sheltered from winds, and they incorporated that into everything. Cairns being an example. I slept in one myself, uh, two with the dogs in Orkney, and um, it is it's, it's mesmerisingly fascinating. Um, the manpower, the effort to do all of that sort of thing as well. You know, they couldn't just get yeah. on a JCB and drive up yeah. with a trailer of rocks. They had to work for this, and yeah, it's, it's 
Yeah. Crazy. Big, big slabs yeah. of stone. Huge. And how did they lift that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just lots of people, I suppose, and yeah. levers and, and things like that. It is. It's yeah. crazy. Because I, mean, I know um, the Kerns themselves, they used to leave the bodies, um, you know, a bit away from the Kerns, but outside for however long so that all the nature can basically take back and all the other animals would come and feed off of the bodies and then they'd put them um, on a slab as when they're for skeletons and then basically put the, another slab on top for the next. So you've probably got five, six hundred years of... Flat-packed uh, humans. Yeah, flat-packed humans. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Ikea for humans, yeah. But either way, fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Wow. They don't get enough credit. No. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris, well, for pleasure. having this conversation. My absolute pleasure. It's, um, and may it benefit many people. I hope so. Yeah. Mm. Get out there, guys. Yeah. And Je um, so people can find out more about what you've done. You've done a, a documentary. Yes, yes. Which um, I haven't seen yet. I'm so looking forward to seeing okay. it. Uh, what's your documentary called? Um, so it's on iPlayer. It's a series called Our Lives and it's called The Long Walk Home. So, um, yeah, we did that filming. Um, basically in Scotland so yeah it's a good little documentary it's just won an award actually <laughs> oh yeah BAFTA yeah, yeah I thought I'd pick myself yeah. up there for oh no it's been nominated for BAFTA it's nominated for yeah. BAFTA but it just won a, a, a television award for yeah. um, up and coming basically documentary so yeah hopefully there'll be a second one that's out awesome thank you and there's what's the is it Chris Walks the Coast Chris Walks the UK Chris Walks the UK and then Kate has one called Kate Walks the Coast. Kate Walks the Coast, that's it. Kate yeah, Walks the Coast. That's on Facebook and Instagram. And if people want to get involved with sponsoring the charity you've been doing it for, what's the best way to do that? Uh, just all on there. The link's at the top yeah. of the page. If not, just uh, chriswalks.com um, into Google or, or whatever, and it'll come up. So, yeah, that'd be much appreciated. Mm. Awesome, dude. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll yeah, do, okay. we we'll like do that. The, the modern one, we do the ancient one. Yeah. Uh, how about the, the, the oldest one of all? Yes, <laughs> and, and the best. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Awesome Thank you, Rob. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cree. <laughs>